For our second message today, we have a sermon from Mr. Matthew Steele entitled, Confessions of Faith. Mr. Steele. Thank you, Reg. I appreciate you trying to sing uh, God Save the Queen for us earlier. <laughs> um, if you'd have done the correct verses, there would have been more. I was trying to get Mark to sing with me. We were going to start rebelling at the back there. He just gave me a funny look. He wasn't going to do that. Yeah, I may have mentioned this uh, story once to you before, but um, a little while back I was having a, uh, what started out as a business conversation with my then new boss. And, it, you know, it was toward the end of the day, and things got a little bit more relaxed toward the end of the day. And um, I was kind of getting ready to leave his office. And then he said, well, before you go, I have a couple of questions. And remember, this is the boss that looked our website up after I had told him about some holy days that I needed off and so on. And so he found my LinkedIn page, and he found our church website, and he could be listening right now. I probably should be nice to him. But he said, I have a couple of questions, Is, if it's okay. And I was like, sure. What, what do you want to talk about? Well, it's about you know, faith, and, and I've been doing some reading. I just have some questions. And I said, okay, um, that's fine. And we proceeded to have probably a good hour-long conversation, very deep conversation, in which we talked about uh, many different things. We talked about evolution, and we talked about atheism and Christianity, and he shared some of his experiences growing up in a particular church denomination. And he expressed you know, his um, maybe a distaste for some of the hypocrisy that he saw. And, and, and some of the things that he disagreed with, and that he, that he didn't maybe see people living up to their faith. Which, you know, of course, if you're looking for an excuse not to believe, well then, there's how many of us here? We, we, we all fail, right? And so if somebody's looking at a human source uh, for an excuse not to believe, then we'll certainly find one. We touched on that a little bit. But I thought it was, you know, good that he was willing to share that. Uh, it was very open conversation. And I shared back some thoughts, some uh, counter thoughts that I had, and, and I also advised him to look at uh, a few different books. I gave him some book titles that, that he could go look at, study, you know, from the religious aspect, all the way through to intelligent design and, and, and creation, uh, Darwin's black box, all of that good stuff. And then we also discussed the accuracy of the biblical accounts. And he's a very data-driven guy. He's, a, he's a, a, a CFO, so he wants numbers, dollars, a finance guy. And so I was surprised that he was so ignorant, not in a bad way, but just of biblical history. If it's something you're going to you know, criticize and um, debunk, Maybe you want to get your facts right. So we had a conversation about that. And, uh, you know, he's my boss, so I've got to be clever about how I'm doing that. 
But it was a really good conversation, and I, I appreciated it. And you can kind of tell, well, we're, we're kind of done. I don't know how much more we can talk through. And I was really needing to get some things done before I needed to go home. And he said, well, before you leave, at the end of the conversation, he said, let me ask you this. Are you saying, then, that you believe that Jesus was born of a virgin? That he grew up to be a man? And that he was eventually crucified on a cross? And that he was buried in the earth? And that three days later, he came back to life? Do you believe that? And, you know, thinking in my head, the way he was asking that question, I really got the sense that he was, was expecting me to give him an answer of, well, you know, it's an analogy, or it's a, you know, it's, it's a story, it's a proverb, or a parable. But I just said, yes, that's what I believe. And he, he kind of sits back in his chair, and he goes, huh, interesting. Interesting. And I was like, well, I got to go. I got to go finish some work. He's like, yeah, go get, get your work done. Interesting conversation. I really enjoyed it. We've had some others since then. But I got the impression as though he had been given a different answer before. That he had been told, perhaps, that it was a parable. Or, well, we're not too sure. Or whatever the version was. But... For me, it's very clear. It is, and it was, a confession of my faith. Very easily done. And there really isn't any other response that I could have given. And I don't know why he was really surprised that I would have given a different, you know, that I gave that, that response, especially after him checking my background out. And I'm really curious, I don't want to ask him, but I'm like, have you listened to any of our messages? But I probably shouldn't ask. But I do believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. That he grew, as, uh, grew up as a man, as a human being. That he experienced life. That he engaged in his ministry. That he went all over the region of Judea and Galilee, performing miracles. Raising the dead. Healing the sick that he taught, that he loved the people that came before him, that he blessed the little children. I believe those things. And that he died, and that when he was resurrected and presented before his father, I became alive. That I was now alive in Christ Jesus because of what he did. And each one of us have that same confession. He is our Savior. He continually provides that intercession for us, even now, as our Savior. I don't know if my boss will ever agree. I pray that he will. I've subsequently learned that his position is, is really hardening in atheism and Darwinian theory, and that's sad. But I understand where he's coming from. But I was glad of the opportunity to share my faith. And I, I kind of left the room, and I don't know if you've ever experienced this, 
when you've shared your faith with someone and it's been a genuine conversation, even if they haven't accepted it, there's a spiritual uplifting that takes place. Uh, maybe a, a feeling of, well, I did my job. I did ultimately what I'm here to do. Because while I may be at this company and earning a living and providing for my family, my ultimate job is something different. My ultimate job is to engage in the confession of my faith. And we'll look at that. We'll get a little deeper into that. If you would turn to uh, Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. Each of us have, when we've had an opportunity to do this, to share our faith with others, we are doing what Paul said in this, in this verse. He said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I'm not ashamed of it. So when you're asked that question in front of a crowd, in front of a single person, and the answer to them is foolishness, when we, when we give that answer in confidence, in faith, we are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation. For everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So we confess our faith. And confession is good for the soul. It's good for us. It's good for the hearers of our answers and of our confession. And yeah, we, we confess to one another of our sins, we maybe confess our deep sins to God so that we can be forgiven. But more than that, our confession has to grow from, from just our sins and our trespasses and needing that, that forgiveness. It has to grow into this confession of our faith, an opportunity to confess our faith to others. We need essentially our own confession of faith, individually. Now, what do I mean by that? What, about, what do I mean by the a confession of our faith, our individual confession of our faith? Well, there are many confessions of faith, official statements and confessions of faith. Perhaps the most famous is uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith. I had to look that one up. It's as old as, uh, it, it was originally developed in 1646. 1646, in Parliament in Westminster. And it was actually certified by the state, by Parliament. And it's still in use today. Presbyterian churches use it, the Church of Scotland uses it, and it probably finds its way in many different denominations, and many different Christian churches. And even if they don't specifically state that, they have a confession of faith. We could call it a statement of beliefs or a, um, a confession of beliefs. But what's interesting about, uh, the, in particular, this 1646 version of the Westminster Confession of Faith is that for the first time, they really strongly implemented in a confession of faith the notion that scripture comes first. Now, <laughs> they continue to add some man-made traditions to that, but this was a Protestant 
confession of faith. That scripture is the only basis for their faith, not perhaps a Catholic uh, confession of faith. So there was a significant difference there, and it's just one of the things that is on the history of Protestantism, and, and really we are also inheritors of some of that, because scripture now is first, not the Pope, or not the Holy See, or the power of Rome. So that's an important fact. Confessions of faith, of faith are nothing more, though, than short statements. Short statements that clearly and succinctly communicate what you believe. I want you to think about that. Businesses use these, these tools all the time. They have mission statements, right? They have a particular phrase that they've put together, sometimes by committee, and you can tell, that are designed to communicate in a, a very short statement exactly what they're about, what they do, what they make, what service they provide, maybe some of their values as an organization, things of that nature. We need our own. Now, we have our statement of beliefs, and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about an individual written out confession of our faith, what we believe. And it will have our unique language. It will have our own tone and sound to it. A confession of our faith that we can remember, that we can communicate when we are asked the question. Now, you may be thinking, well, I don't know about the term confession of faith. It's an old-fashioned term. It's almost, I don't know, religious-sounding. But we do this all the time. We confess all the time. Hey, would you help me out with the, uh, You know, I'm not really, I'm not very good at that stuff. I, we confess. We confess our weaknesses. We confess our love. We confess our love for our husband or our wife or, or our, our children, our family, our brethren. We confess all the time. It's not just an old religious term. We should have a confession of our faith, a statement of our faith. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope or our faith without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Well, let me ask you a question. How can we hold fast to something? How can we hold fast to something that we have not articulated? I want you to think about that. The Bible has a lot of words in it, and we have a lot of scriptures, and we certainly memorize our favorite scriptures because, I mean, they mean something to us. They have an emotional detachment. But we don't necessarily memorize, oh, uh, I don't know, I'm just trying to pick on something. Maybe we don't memorize Leviticus 23. Maybe we could call out some of those parts, but could we be technically accurate and articulate our belief in the holy days. Can we do that? When somebody asks us a question, can we give them a really succinct, 
effective answer. Why do you do these Jewish holy days? And maybe we can. But we are empowered. We are, we give, we're given more tools. If we can come up with a specific statement that explains that. Instead of maybe each time we're asked that question, it's a different answer. Well, uh, let's see. Um, let me think. A confession of faith is a useful tool to help us articulate our beliefs in a clear, definitive statement. Pastor Andrews used this scripture last week, and I've been thinking about it. Um, in the light of this concept of, of faith and having this confession of faith, he said in, in Proverbs 25, 11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. And when he read that scripture last week, I just had this image, I don't know why, of just a, of a painting, you know, one of those still life paintings, but now it's silver, a silver piece holding these apples of gold. Beautifully placed words. Exquisitely designed to deliver the information, to articulate your faith to somebody that asks the question. Words have power. They reveal. They can communicate. They inform. As, as Pastor Andrew said last week, they can lift up. But they can pull down. Words have power. Confessions of faith with our mouths, confessing that faith, also have power. And I have to confess, sometimes, see, I'm confessing already, that sometimes I don't have what I feel like was really the right words. You know, you're caught off guard, and somebody asks a question, you're like, oh, uh, 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 well, and you give the answer. I was like, ah. I could have said this, I could have said this. Well, if I had taken the time to perhaps memorize some key confessions of faith, maybe I'd give a better answer, a more effective answer. Confessions of our faith fitly spoken in humility, in grace, can be a beautiful thing. They can be an edifying thing. You know, there was one time I remember I was talking with a, a colleague at work, and it was not long after my dad had died. And she was uh, expressing, she, she was trying to be comforting, and she said, well, something along the lines of, well, at least your dad is looking over you and watching over you now. And I understood the sentiment. I, I appreciated what she was trying to say. And I said, well, <laughs> I don't actually believe that. And I, I said, this is what I believe. That my father is at rest. That he is safe. He is protected from anything that this world could throw at him. And that he is waiting and sleep, as it were, for the resurrection. When I'll see him again. And I said, after that, I, I followed that up. And I said, think of how bad it would be for him to be watching me go through life and all the struggles that I have to endure. And he couldn't do a single thing about it. 
and I saw the light go off in her, in her head. You're right. I never thought of it that way. Apples of gold, right? And settings of silver. So that time I was prepared. <laughs> but of course, that was on my mind. But there's so many times when we're asked that question and we're not prepared. So having a personal statement of, conf of confession that we, we have about our faith can really empower us. So firstly, we are told to hold fast the confession of our hope, of our faith, and not lose it, not forget it. Secondly, we have to know what we believe, and we have to know how, clear, how to clearly articulate what we believe. Thirdly, we have to have faith in what we believe. What? We have to have faith in what we believe. It might sound like an odd thing to say, but do we have faith in what we believe? Think about it. I'm reminded of that time, and I'm often reminded of that time, that Jesus freed the, the boy, the young man that was bound up with an, a spirit. Uh, it was a, a dumb and uh, deaf spirit. In Mark chapter 9 and verse 17, we find the story, and it says, one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I have brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams at the mouth and gnashes at his teeth and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Well, hopefully he'll bear with us for a very long time. Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him, and when he saw him, he immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed and foaming at the mouth. And so he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him into, both into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Just think about what that father's life was like. Trying to keep his son alive. A spirit, an evil spirit, destroying him daily. That is difficult for us to imagine. Jesus said unto him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I always remember that. It's very profound. Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? I believe. But Lord, you, you really help. You need to help my unbelief. It's a struggle. Having that belief but maybe not having faith. After all, it was James, right, that said, faith is in many ways belief in action. He said he'd show his, his faith by his works. 
And it's so difficult for, have, for us to have faith in action when we are powerless, like this father, to do anything about it. We cannot bring a child back from the dead. We cannot bring health back to our child. We cannot raise a parent back to life. We're, we're trapped. Believing, but needing faith to endure that trial and that challenge. I remember having that same prayer over my son Joseph when he was fighting for his life in the NICU. I believe, I know that you can heal him. Help my unbelief. And we have all of us had that situation and many, many worse in our life. In many ways, this statement by the Father was a confession of faith of sorts and also a confession of weakness, that he was powerless to do anything and that he was solely reliant on the Savior, the only one on the earth that could have done what he did. And he had faith to bring his son before him. It says, when Jesus saw the people running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. And then the spirit cried out and convulsed him greatly and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said, he is dead. And Renee and I were talking about this earlier. I often wonder if he was dead. That spirit coming out of him just, I'm going to take this life with me. It was kind of futile because Jesus is the power over death and life. It says, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. What an amazing story and life story that that family would have. Do you think that they would believe on, the, on Jesus as the Messiah, as the disciples started to infect the land with this new faith? I bet you they did. Something else that's interesting, though. The disciples came to him privately because they were a little embarrassed. How come we couldn't cast this spirit out? And he said unto them, this kind can only come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. What does that speak to? Prayer and fasting. It's really quite simple. Preparation. There's some preparation that has to be done. You have to do some work ahead of time. You have to make yourself ready. Jesus said this kind of spirit cannot come out without prayer and fasting, without preparation and a prior process that makes the servant of God ready to perform the work. It's the same with our confessions of faith. It is the same. We cannot not study the God's word. We cannot ignore the scriptures and think that we can give an answer to those that ask of us. We have to prepare. Preparing, perhaps, 
by writing those confessions of faith with the scriptures and reading them and memorizing them and getting ready for the test. Many of us have taken tests, right? And we walk into, we walk into the, the, the examination room, we sit down, and we do so having studied and prepared. Our confession of faith is no different. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, he says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be always ready to give a defense to everyone who asks of you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We have to prepare. We have to make ourselves ready. Peter uses that word. Always be ready. How can we make ourselves ready? We study. We memorize. We have those confessions of faith prepared. And like I said before, I think really we should do that. We should, in many ways, just like the kings of old. When they, when they were crowned in Israel, they had to read the law. Why not do that? Prepare ourselves and write out those confessions of faith, those effective statements about what we believe from the scriptures directly, if that makes sense. But also remembering what one of the things we're called to do is to articulate it in a world that doesn't understand scripture. Even more so today, that has no basis in scripture. When I was growing up, Many of us were growing up, nearly everybody went to Sunday school at some point, whether they made fun of it or not. But that's not true today. So we have to articulate the word, the truth of God, in such a way that they will understand it. That should be in our confession of faith. Things like this. What we believe about the Father. What we believe about Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the plan of salvation, the future of mankind, the purpose for our existence. These are all light topics, I know. But these are the questions that we are asked. And certainly, if we avail ourselves of those, what will happen when we die? What will happen to our loved ones when they die? Why are we here? These are the sorts of things that we can prepare for to give an answer, to give a defense to anyone and everyone who asks for a reason. Notice he uses the word reason. Logical, well thought out reason. Not just, well, you just got to have faith. That doesn't work in this world. We need to give reason. Moral reason. But now you may say, hold on a second, Matt. What about Matthew 10, verse 16 through 20? Jesus says this. He says, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in the synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about what you should speak. 
for it will be given. Uh, it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Well, to this point, I say there's no conflict. God will give us what we are to say at that moment. He will give it to us with power, with wisdom. We'll be effective. We'll be able to communicate exactly what he wants us to say. And on the day of judgment, those that hear us will be without excuse. But there's no conflict here of what I just said about our preparation. Because if we're brought before kings and rulers, we will have confidence and faith that we are not alone. God has given this promise. But I have a question. What do you suppose will get us brought before kings and rulers in the first place? Confessions of faith. You've got to cause enough trouble to get these guys to pay attention. Reg can do that really well. And that's exactly what Paul did, isn't it? He went confessing his faith all over the, the Roman world before they finally said, we had enough of this guy and started dragging him before rulers and princes and ultimately Caesar himself. So, we can't just rely on this scripture. Oh, God's going to give it to us. I don't know if they'll even notice us if we don't engage in confessions of faith. C.S. Lewis once said, none can give to another what he does not possess himself. Isn't that a powerful statement? None can give to another what he does not possess himself. In other words, we cannot teach what we ourselves do not possess. We must be ready with preparation to give a defense of the confession of our faith. So we've learned that firstly, we have to hold on to the confession of our hope, of our faith. Secondly, we have to know what we believe and how to clearly articulate that belief. Thirdly, we have to have faith in what we believe. And so then fourthly, we must sanctify God in our hearts. God must be dwelling in us. As we read earlier, Peter urges us to sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, which means to create a holy place. In fact, to create the holiest of places in us, just as in the tabernacle. And that comes first. That comes first before we can really confess our faith. But how do we do that? Well, we actually go all the way back to where we started today, back to Hebrews 10 and verse 19. Paul says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience on our bodies washed, with pure water. This is how we are sanctified. And we know this. This is how, in fact, God sanctifies us and makes that holy place in us 
Jesus, God's own arm, has cleansed us. And if you think about that, we're getting towards Passover. We're looking towards Passover right now. We're getting ready for the Super Sabbath weekend. Preparing our minds and our hearts for that anniversary, for that remembrance, and that recommitting of our secret holy place in our hearts that God has made for us to dwell with him, where he comes and sups with us, where he is in us, helping us. But Jesus Christ's own blood has sprinkled our hearts, cleansed it. So we have to confess, or rather, before we confess, we have to be cleansed from our evil conscience. And then he says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having a heart sprinkled from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water, and let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Hold fast. So we've learned that we must hold fast that confession of our faith. That we, that we have to know what we believe and how to communicate it. Thirdly, that we have faith in what we believe. Fourthly, that we are sanctified by God dwelling in us. And our final point is found in Romans chapter 10, verse 5. We're joining Paul in this, this part here, and he's expressing his deep desire that Israel would be saved. And he says in verse 5, For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend to, uh, descend to the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. Why is the word near you? Why is it in your mouth and in your heart? Because you have prepared you have put it there. You have studied. And you are prepared with your confessions of faith. So that you can, so that we can, give a defense. These are our talking points, to put it in today's political terms. These are the talking points that by which we can defend the gospel. The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That gives me chills. Do we confess that? Yes, we do. Do we confess that to the world when it's difficult? and uncomfortable, and challenging, and would put us at odds with others around us, then that's a different circumstance, isn't it? I really appreciated Sean's message from earlier, because he helped remind us of, of the world that we are in, 
that we need that armor to protect us. And it, it, I was reminded, I saw a YouTube video um, maybe a week or so ago. And this isn't on a religious basis, but there was, it was a video of a, of a guy that was in a coffee shop in an apartment complex. And he was wearing a pro-Trump t-shirt, whatever it was. And it was late at night. And he started recording this thing on his phone because he was basically being accosted by two individuals with the foulest mouths possible, attacking him, uh, you know, not physically, although near, screaming at him, yelling. There was a woman and a man. Neither one of them were, they, they didn't know each other, but they decided to abuse this guy verbally. This is in the country that says we have free speech, right? That no matter how obnoxious your t-shirt says, you have a right to do that. I, can, I have a right to disagree and tell you I disagree in a civil and polite way. But now we live in a world where you can be attacked for that. How long is it before you will be attacked for having, I don't know, John 3.16 on your t-shirt? Sean reminded us we need our armor. And we need our armor. Well, you only need your armor if you're going into battle. And you're, you're only going into battle if you need to do something, right? You need to win something. And we are charged with winning for Christ. And we do that with confessions of faith. There's a real process at work, though. When we confess our faith, when we actually speak the words that we believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he died and has saved us from our sins and is now resurrected, as Paul is explaining here, or the writer, of, the writer is explaining here, we will be saved. You recognize that? when we confess those things, we ourselves are ensuring our own salvation as well as the salvation of those that are listening to us. There's a real process at work. We must confess with our mouths. We have to speak those words of confession. We have to articulate our faith. And when we do, it is made unto our salvation. When we confess openly for others to hear, there's a spiritual process of work in us. Verse 11, it says, For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I believe that. We believe that. We need to confess that to a world that doesn't even know who he is. So, when we're given an opportunity to confess our faith, will we take that opportunity? Or maybe I'll ask you a different question. Should we take that opportunity? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 32, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. 
But whosoever denies me before man, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And I've often thought about that passage and thinking about it in terms of what, you know, what we see the disciples experience, what Paul experienced. Drug up in front of the courts. We command you to not do these things in the name of Jesus. And they refused. They said, we're going to keep doing it. And so I imagined that, that maybe we would face that same kind of situation. And that we need to be careful to confess Jesus' name before men. But is that the only time that this applies? I'm not sure. I think this applies now, moving forward. That when the opportunity comes, we must confess our faith in Christ Jesus. That we cannot deny him before men. And you notice, there's no middle option. And that's the more uncomfortable part, right? There's no option to believe and remain in obscurity. It's one or the other. Kind of reminds me of the, uh, the parable of the, the talents. And the one guy tried to find the middle option and buried it in the ground. There is no middle option. Because we have a job to do. Soldiers on the battlefield that are not engaging with the enemy are useless to the commander in the field. We should be about confessing our faith, that we confess that Jesus is Lord and that he is Savior. And there's no middle ground. So we've learned that firstly we hold fast to the confession of our faith and not lose it. But secondly, that we know what we believe and how to articulate that belief. Thirdly, that we have the faith in what we believe. Fourthly, that we must sanctify God in our hearts. That God must be dwelling in us. And that we must confess our faith before man. Confessing that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 27, Jesus says, Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. That is his commandment to us, as much as it was to them. Whatever you hear in the, in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who will kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs on your head are numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. As Paul said, let us continue in the confession of our faith, knowing that in speaking this confession with our lips, we do so unto our salvation and perhaps to the saving of the world. This is needed now in these times, as Sean said earlier, more than ever.